Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 7 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 7. New Scenes and Faces. Mist clogs the sunshine. Smoky dwarf houses have we round on every side. Matthew Arnold The next afternoon, about twenty miles from Milton Northern, they entered on the little branch railway that led to Heston. Heston itself was one long straggling street, running parallel to the seashore. It had a character of its own, as different from the little bathing places in the south of England as they again from those of the continent. To use a Scotch word, everything looked more purpose-like. The country carts had more iron and less wood and leather about the horse-gear. The people in the streets, although on pleasure bent, had yet a busy mind. The colors looked grayer, more enduring, not so gay and pretty. There were no smock-frocks, even among the country folk. They retarded motion and were apt to catch on machinery, and so the habit of wearing them had died out. In such towns in the south of England, Margaret had seen the shopmen, when not employed in their business, lounging a little at their doors, enjoying the fresh air, and then look up and down the street. Here, if they had any leisure from customers, they made themselves business in the shop, even, Margaret fancied, to the unnecessary unrolling and re-rolling of ribbons. All these differences struck upon her mind, as she and her mother went out next morning to look for lodgings. Their two nights at hotels had cost more than Mr. Hale had anticipated, and they were glad to take the first clean, cheerful rooms they met with that were at liberty to receive them. There, for the first time in many days, did Margaret feel at rest. There was a dreaminess in the rest, too, which made it still more perfect and luxurious to repose in. The distant sea, lapping the sandy shore with measured sound, the nearer cries of the donkey-boys, the unusual scenes moving before her like pictures, which she cared not in her laziness to have fully explained before they passed away, the stroll down the beach to breathe the sea air, soft and warm on that sandy shore, even to the end of November, the great long misty sea-line touching the tender-coloured sky, the white sail of a distant boat turning silver in some pale sunbeam. It seemed as if she could dream her life away in such luxury of pensiveness, in which she made her present all in all, from not daring to think of the past or wishing to contemplate the future. But the future must be met, however stern and iron it be. One evening it was arranged that Margaret and her father should go the next day to Milton Northern and look out for a house. Mr. Hale had received several letters from Mr. Bell, and one or two from Mr. Thornton, and he was anxious to ascertain at once a good many particulars respecting his position and chances of success there, which he could only do by an interview with the latter gentleman. Margaret knew that they ought to be removing, but she had a repugnance to the idea of a manufacturing town, and believed that her mother was receiving benefit from Heston Eyre, so she would willingly have deferred the expedition to Milton. 
for several miles before they reached milton they saw a deep lead-colored cloud hanging over the horizon in the direction in which it lay it was all the darker from contrast with the pale blue-gray of the wintry sky for in heston there had been the earliest signs of frost nearer to the town the air had a faint taste and smell of smoke perhaps after all more a loss of the fragrance of grass and herbage than any positive taste or smell quick they were whirled over long straight hopeless streets of regularly built houses all small and of brick here and there a great oblong many-windowed factory stood up like a hen among her chickens puffing out black unparliamentary smoke and sufficiently accounting for the cloud which margaret had taken to foretell rain as they drove through the larger and wider streets from the station to the hotel they had to stop constantly great loaded lorries blocked up the not overwide thoroughfares margaret had now and then been into the city in her drives with her aunt but there the heavy lumbering vehicles seemed various in their purposes and intents here every van every wagon and truck bore cotton either in the raw shape in bags or the woven shape in bales of calico people thronged the footpaths most of them well dressed as regarded the material but with a slovenly looseness which struck margaret as different from the shabby threadbare smartness of a similar class in london new street said mr hale this i believe is the principal street in milton bell has often spoken to me about it it was the opening of this street from a lane into a great thoroughfare thirty years ago which caused his property to rise so much in value mr thornton's mill must be somewhere not very far off for he is mr bell's tenant but i fancy he dates from his warehouse where is our hotel papa close to the end of this street i believe shall we have lunch before or after we have looked at the houses we marked in the milton times oh let us get our work done first very well then i will only see if there is any note or letter for me from mr thornton who said he would let me know anything he might hear about these houses and then we will set off we will keep the cab it will be safer than losing ourselves and being too late for the train this afternoon there were no letters awaiting him they set out on their house hunting thirty pounds a year was all they could afford to give but in hampshire they could have met with a roomy house and a pleasant garden for the money here even the necessary accommodation of two sitting-rooms and four bedrooms seemed unattainable they went through their list rejecting each as they visited it then they looked at each other in dismay we must go back to the second i think that one in crampton don't they call the suburb there there were three sitting-rooms don't you remember how we laughed at the number compared with the three bedrooms but i have planned it all the front room downstairs is to be your study and our dining-room poor papa for you know we settled mamma is to have as cheerful a sitting-room as we can get and that front room upstairs with the atrocious blue and pink paper and heavy cornice had really a pretty view over the plain with a great bend of a river or a canal or whatever it is down below then i could have the little bedroom behind in that projection at the head of the first flight of stairs over the kitchen you know and you and mamma the room behind the drawing-room and that closet in the roof will make you a splendid dressing-room but dixon and the girl we are to have to help oh wait a minute i am overpowered by the discovery of my own genius for management 
Dixon is to have, let me see, I had it once, the back sitting-room. I think she will like that. She grumbles so much about the stairs at Heston. And the girl is to have that sloping attic over your room and Mamma's. Won't that do? I dare say it will. But the papers! What taste! And the overloading such a house with colour and such heavy cornices! Never mind, Papa. Surely you can charm the landlord into repapering one or two of the rooms, the drawing-room and your bedroom, for Mamma will come in most contact with them, and your bookshelves will hide a great deal of that gaudy paper in the dining-room. Then you think it best? If so, I had better go at once and call on this Mr. Donkin, to whom the advertisement refers me. I will take you back to the hotel, where you can order lunch and rest, and by the time it is ready I shall be with you. I hope I shall be able to get new papers. Margaret hoped so, too, though she said nothing. She had never come fairly in contact with the taste that loves ornament, however bad, more than plainness and simplicity which are of themselves the framework of elegance. Her father took her through the entrance of the hotel, and leaving her at the foot of the staircase, went to the address of the landlord of the house they had fixed upon. Just as Margaret had her hand on the door of their sitting-room, she was followed by a quick-stepping waiter. "'I beg your pardon, ma'am. The gentleman was gone so quickly. I had no time to tell him. Mr. Thornton called almost directly after you left, and, as I understood from what the gentleman said, you would be back in an hour, I told him so.' and he came again five minutes ago, and said he would wait for Mr. Hale. He is in your room now, ma'am. Thank you. My father will return soon, and then you can tell him. Margaret opened the door and went in with the straight, fearless, dignified presence habitual to her. She felt no awkwardness. She had too much the habits of society for that. Here was a person come on business to her father, and, as he was one who had shown himself obliging, she was disposed to treat him with a full measure of civility. Mr. Thornton was a good deal more surprised and discomfited than she. Instead of a quiet, middle-aged clergyman, a young lady came forward with frank dignity, a young lady of a different type to most of those he was in the habit of seeing. Her dress was very plain, a close straw bonnet of the best material and shape, trimmed with white ribbon, a dark silk gown without any trimmings or flounce, a large Indian shawl, which hung about her in long, heavy folds, and which she wore as an empress wears her drapery. He did not understand who she was, as he caught the simple, straight, unabashed look, which showed that his being there was of no concern to the beautiful countenance, and called up no flush of surprise to the pale ivory of the complexion. He had heard that Mr. Hale had a daughter, but he had imagined that she was a little girl. Mr. Thornton, I believe, said Margaret, after a half-instant's pause, during which his unready words would not come. "'Will you sit down? My father brought me to the door not a minute ago, but unfortunately he was not told that you were here, and he has gone away on some business. But he will come back almost directly. I am sorry you have had the trouble of calling twice.' Mr. Thornton was in habits of authority himself, but she seemed to assume some kind of rule over him at once. He had been getting impatient at the loss of his time on a market-day, the moment before she appeared, yet now he calmly took a seat at her bidding. "'Do you know where it is that Mr. Hale has gone to? Perhaps I might be able to find him.' "'He has gone to Mr. Donkin's, in Canute Street. He is the landlord of the house my father wishes to take in Crampton.' 
Mr. Thornton knew the house. He had seen the advertisement, and been to look at it, in compliance with the request of Mr. Bell's, that he would assist Mr. Hale to the best of his power, and also instigated by his own interest in the cause of a clergyman who had given up his living under circumstances such as those of Mr. Hale. Mr. Thornton had thought that the house in Crampton was really just the thing, but now that he saw Margaret, with her superb ways of moving and looking, he began to feel ashamed of having imagined that it would do very well for the Hales, in spite of a certain vulgarity in it which had struck him at the time of his looking it over. Margaret could not help her looks, but the short curled upper lip, the round, massive, upturned chin, the manner of carrying her head, her movements, full of a soft feminine defiance, always gave strangers the impression of haughtiness. She was tired now, and would rather have remained silent, and taken the rest her father had planned for her. But, of course, she owed it to herself to be a gentlewoman, and to speak courteously from time to time to this stranger. Not over-brushed, nor over-polished, it must be confessed, after his rough encounter with Milton streets and crowds. She wished that he would go, as he had once spoken of doing, instead of sitting there, answering with curt sentences all the remarks she made. She had taken off her shawl, and hung it over the back of her chair. She sat facing him, and facing the light. Her full beauty met his eye. Her round, white, inflexible throat, rising out of the full, yet lithe figure. Her lips, moving so slightly as she spoke, not breaking the cold, serene look of her face with any variation from the one lovely, haughty curve. Her eyes, with their soft gloom, meeting his with quiet, maiden freedom. He almost said to himself that he did not like her, before their conversation ended. He tried so to compensate himself for the mortifying feeling that while he looked upon her with an admiration he could not repress, she looked at him with proud indifference, taking him, he thought, for what, in his irritation, he told himself he was, a great rough fellow, with not a grace or a refinement about him. Her quiet coldness of demeanour he interpreted into contemptuousness, and resented it in his heart to the pitch of almost inclining him to get up and go away, and have nothing more to do with these hails, and their superciliousness. Just as Margaret had exhausted her last subject of conversation, and yet conversation that could hardly be called which consisted of so few and such short speeches, her father came in, and with his pleasant gentlemanly courteousness of apology reinstated his name and family in Mr. Thornton's good opinion. Mr. Hale and his visitor had a good deal to say respecting their mutual friend, Mr. Bell, and Margaret, glad that her part of entertaining the visitor was over, went to the window to try and make herself more familiar with the strange aspect of the street. She got so much absorbed in watching what was going on outside that she hardly heard her father when he spoke to her, and he had to repeat what he said. "'Margaret, the landlord will persist in admiring that hideous paper, and I am afraid we must let it remain.' "'Oh, dear, I am sorry,' she replied, and began to turn over in her mind the possibility of hiding part of it, at least, by some of her sketches, but gave up the idea at last, as likely only to make bad worse. Her father, meanwhile, with his kindly country hospitality, was pressing Mr. Thornton to stay to luncheon with them. It would have been very inconvenient to him to do so, yet he felt that he should have yielded, if Margaret by word or look had seconded her father's invitation. He was glad she did not, and yet he was irritated at her for not doing it. 
she gave him a low, grave bow when he left, and he felt more awkward and self-conscious in every limb than he had ever done in all his life before. "'Well, Margaret, now to luncheon, as fast as we can. Have you ordered it?' "'No, Papa. That man was here when I came home, and I have never had an opportunity.' "'Then we must take anything we can get. He must have been waiting a long time, I'm afraid.' "'It seemed exceedingly long to me. I was just at the last gasp when you came in. He never went on with any subject, but gave little, short, abrupt answers.' "'Very much to the point, though, I should think. He is a clear-headed fellow. He said, "'Did you hear that Crampton is on gravelly soil, and by far the most healthy suburb in the neighbourhood of Milton?' When they returned to Heston, there was the day's account to be given to Mrs. Hale, who was full of questions which they answered in the intervals of tea-drinking. "'And what is your correspondent, Mr. Thornton, like?' "'Ask Margaret,' said her husband. She and he had a long attempt at conversation, while I was away speaking to the landlord. "'Oh, I hardly know what he is like,' said Margaret, lazily, too tired to tax her powers of description much, and then rousing herself, she said, "'He is a tall, broad-shouldered man, about—how old, Papa?' "'I should guess about thirty. "'About thirty, with a face that is neither exactly plain nor yet handsome, nothing remarkable.' Not quite a gentleman, but that was hardly to be expected. "'Not vulgar or common, though,' put in her father, rather jealous of any disparagement of the sole friend he had in Milton. "'Oh, no,' said Margaret, with such an expression of resolution and power. No face, however plain in feature, could be either vulgar or common. I should not like to have to bargain with him. He looks very inflexible. Altogether a man who seems made for his niche, mamma sagacious, and strong, as becomes a great tradesman. "'Don't call the Milton manufacturers tradesmen, Margaret,' said her father. "'They are very different.' "'Are they? I apply the word to all who have something tangible to sell. But if you think the term is not correct, Papa, I won't use it. But, oh, Mamma, speaking of vulgarity and commonness, you must prepare yourself for our drawing-room paper.' pink and blue roses with yellow leaves, and such a heavy cornice round the room. But when they removed to their new house in Milton, the obnoxious papers were gone. The landlord received their thanks very composedly, and let them think, if they liked, that he had relented from his expressed determination not to repaper. There was no particular need to tell him that what he did not care to do for a reverend Mr. Hale, unknown in Milton, he was only too glad to do at the one short, sharp remonstrance of Mr. Thornton, the wealthy manufacturer. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 8 Homesickness and it's hame, 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 hame fain would I be. It needed the pretty light papering of the rooms to reconcile them to Milton. It needed more, more that could not be had. The thick yellow November fogs had come on, and the view of the plain in the valley, made by the sweeping bend of the river, was all shut out when Mrs. Hale arrived at her new home. 
Margaret and Dixon had been at work for two days, unpacking and arranging, but everything inside the house still looked in disorder, and outside a thick fog crept up to the very windows and was driven in to every open door in choking white wreaths of unwholesome mist. "'Oh, Margaret, are we to live here?' asked Mrs. Hale in blank dismay. Margaret's heart echoed the dreariness of the tone in which the question was put. She could scarcely command herself enough to say, "'Oh, the fogs in London are sometimes far worse.' "'But then you knew that London itself, and friends, lay behind it. Here, well, we are desolate. Oh, Dixon, what a place this is!' "'Indeed, ma'am, I'm sure it will be your death before long, and then all know who'll—' "'Stay, Miss Hale, that's far too heavy for you to lift.' "'Not at all, thank you, Dixon,' replied Margaret coldly. "'The best thing we can do for Mamma is to get her room quite ready for her to go to bed, while I go and bring her a cup of coffee.' Mr. Hale was equally out of spirits, and equally came upon Margaret for sympathy. "'Margaret, I do believe this is an unhealthy place. Only suppose that your mother's health, or yours, should suffer.' I wish I had gone to some country place in Wales. This is really terrible," said he, going up to the window. There was no comfort to be given. They were settled in Milton, and must endure smoke and fogs for a season. Indeed, all other life seemed shut out from them by as thick a fog of circumstance. Only the day before Mr. Hale had been reckoning up with dismay how much their removal and fortnight at Heston had cost and he found it had absorbed nearly all his little stock of ready money. No, here they were, and here they must remain. At night, when Margaret realized this, she felt inclined to sit down in a stupor of despair. The heavy, smoky air hung about her bedroom, which occupied the long, narrow projection at the back of the house. The window, placed at the side of the oblong, looked to the blank wall of a similar projection, not above ten feet distant. It loomed through the fog like a great barrier to hope. Inside the room everything was in confusion. All their efforts had been directed to make her mother's room comfortable. Margaret sat down on a box, the direction card upon which struck her as having been written at Helstone. Beautiful, beloved Helstone. She lost herself in dismal thought, but at last she determined to take her mind away from the present, and suddenly remembered that she had a letter from Edith which she had only half read in the bustle of the morning. It was to tell of their arrival at Corfu, their voyage along the Mediterranean, their music and dancing on board ship, the gay new life opening upon her, her house with its trellised balcony and its views over white cliffs and deep blue sea. Edith wrote fluently and well, if not graphically. She could not only seize the salient and characteristic points of a scene, but she could enumerate enough of the indiscriminate particulars for Margaret to make it out for herself. Captain Lennox and another lately married officer shared a villa, high up on the beautiful, precipitous rocks overhanging the sea. Their days, late as it was in the year, seemed spent in boating or land picnics, all out of doors, pleasure-seeking and glad. Edith's life seemed like the deep vault of blue sky above her, free, utterly free, from fleck or cloud. Her husband had to attend drill, and she, the most musical officer's wife there, had to copy the new and popular tunes out of the most recent English music, 
for the benefit of the bandmaster. Those seemed their most severe and arduous duties. She expressed an affectionate hope that, if the regiment stopped another year at Corfu, Margaret might come out and pay her a long visit. She asked Margaret if she remembered the day twelve-month on which she, Edith, wrote, how it rained all day long in Harley Street, and how she would not put on her new gown to go to a stupid dinner, and get it all wet and splashed in going to the carriage, and how at that very dinner they had first met Captain Lennox. Yes, Margaret remembered it well. Edith and Mrs. Shaw had gone to dinner. Margaret had joined the party in the evening. The recollection of the plentiful luxury of all the arrangements, the stately handsomeness of the furniture, the size of the house, the peaceful, untroubled ease of the visitors, all came vividly before her, in strange contrast to the present time. The smooth sea of that old life closed up, without a mark left to tell where they had all been. The habitual dinners, the calls, the shopping, the dancing evenings, were all going on, going on for ever, though her Aunt Shaw and Edith were no longer there, and she, of course, was even less missed. She doubted if any one of that old set ever thought of her, except Henry Lennox. He, too, she knew, would strive to forget her, because of the pain she had caused him. She had heard him often boast of his power of putting any disagreeable thought far away from him. Then she penetrated farther into what might have been. If she had cared for him as a lover, and had accepted him, and this change in her father's opinions and consequent station had taken place, she could not doubt but that it would have been impatiently received by Mr. Lennox. It was a bitter mortification to her, in one sense, but she could bear it patiently, because she knew her father's purity of purpose, and that strengthened her to endure his errors, grave and serious, though in her estimation they were. But the fact of the world esteeming her father degraded, in its rough wholesale judgment, would have oppressed and irritated Mr. Lennox. As she realized what might have been, she grew to be thankful for what was. They were at the lowest now. They could not be worse. Edith's astonishment and her Aunt Shaw's dismay would have to be met bravely when their letters came. So Margaret rose up and began slowly to undress herself, feeling the full luxury of acting leisurely, late as it was, after all the past hurry of the day. She fell asleep, hoping for some brightness, either internal or external. But if she had known how long it would be before the brightness came, her heart would have sunk low. The time of the year was most unpropitious to health as well as to spirits. Her mother caught a severe cold, and Dixon herself was evidently not well, although Margaret could not insult her more than by trying to save her or by taking any care of her. They could hear of no girl to assist her. All were at work in the factories. At least, those who applied were well scolded by Dixon for thinking such as they could ever be trusted to work in a gentleman's house. So they had to keep a charwoman in almost constant employ. Margaret longed to send for Charlotte, but, besides the objection of her being a better servant than they could now afford to keep, the distance was too great. Mr. Hale met with several pupils, recommended to him by Mr. Bell, or by the more immediate influence of Mr. Thornton. They were mostly of the age when many boys would be still at school, but, according to the prevalent and apparently well-founded notions of Milton, to make a lad into a good tradesman he must be caught young and acclimated to the life of the mill, or office, or warehouse. 
if he were sent even to the Scotch universities, he came back unsettled for commercial pursuits. How much more so if he went to Oxford or Cambridge, where he could not be entered until he was eighteen? So most of the manufacturers placed their sons in sucking situations at fourteen or fifteen years of age, unsparingly cutting away all offshoots in the direction of literature or high mental cultivation, in hopes of throwing the whole strength and vigor of the plant into commerce. Still there were some wiser parents, and some young men, who had sense enough to perceive their own deficiencies and strive to remedy them. Nay, there were a few no longer used, but men in the prime of life, who had the stern wisdom to acknowledge their own ignorance, and to learn late what they should have learnt early. Mr. Thornton was perhaps the oldest of Mr. Hale's pupils. He was certainly the favourite. Mr. Hale got into the habit of quoting his opinions so frequently, and with such regard, that it became a little domestic joke to wonder what time, during the hour appointed for instruction, could be given to absolute learning, so much of it appeared to have been spent in conversation. Margaret rather encouraged this light, merry way of viewing her father's acquaintance with Mr. Thornton, because she felt that her mother was inclined to look upon this new friendship of her husband's with jealous eyes. As long as his time had been solely occupied with his books and his parishioners, as at Helstone, she had appeared to care little whether she saw much of him or not. But now that he looked eagerly forward to each renewal of his intercourse with Mr. Thornton, she seemed hurt and annoyed, as if he were slighting her companionship for the first time. Mr. Hale's overpraise had the usual effect of overpraise upon his auditors. They were a little inclined to rebel against Aristides being always called the just. After a quiet life in a country parsonage for more than twenty years, there was something dazzling to Mr. Hale in the energy which conquered immense difficulties with ease. The power of the machinery of Milton, the power of the men of Milton, impressed him with a sense of grandeur which he yielded to without caring to inquire into the details of its exercise. But Margaret went less abroad, among machinery and men, saw less of power in its public effect, and, as it happened, she was thrown with one or two of those who, in all measures affecting masses of people, must be acute sufferers for the good of many. The question always is, has everything been done to make the sufferings of these exceptions as small as possible? Or, in the triumph of the crowded procession, have the helpless been trampled on, instead of being gently lifted aside out of the roadway of the conqueror, whom they have no power to accompany on his march? It fell to Margaret's share, to have to look out for a servant to assist Dixon, who had at first undertaken to find just the person she wanted to do all the rough work of the house. But Dixon's ideas of helpful girls were founded on the recollection of tidy elder scholars at Helstone School, who were only too proud to be allowed to come to the parsonage on a busy day, and treated Mrs. Dixon with all the respect, and a good deal more of fright, which they paid to Mr. and Mrs. Hale. Dixon was not unconscious of this odd reverence which was given to her, nor did she dislike it. It flattered her as much as Louis the Fourteenth was flattered by his courtiers shading their eyes from the dazzling light of his presence. But nothing short of her faithful love for Mrs. Hale could have made her endure the rough independent way in which all the Milton girls, who made application for the servant's place, replied to her inquiries respecting their qualifications. They even went to the length of questioning her back again, having doubts and fears of their own, as to the solvency of a family who lived in a house of thirty pounds a year, and yet gave themselves airs and kept two servants, one of them so very high and mighty. 
Mr. Hale was no longer looked upon as vicar of Helstone, but as a man who only spent at a certain rate. Margaret was weary and impatient of the accounts which Dixon perpetually brought to Mrs. Hale of the behaviour of these would-be servants. Not but what Margaret was repelled by the rough, uncourteous manners of these people. Not but what she shrunk with fastidious pride from their hail-fellow accost, and severely resented their unconcealed curiosity as to the means and position of any family who lived in Milton, and yet were not engaged in trade of some kind. But the more Margaret felt impertinence, the more likely she was to be silent on the subject, and, at any rate, if she took upon herself to make inquiry for a servant, she could spare her mother the recital of all her disappointments and fancied or real insults. Margaret accordingly went up and down to butchers and grocers, seeking for a non-pareil of a girl, and lowering her hopes and expectations every week, as she found the difficulty of meeting with any one in the manufacturing town who would not prefer the better wages and greater independence of working in a mill. It was something of a trial to Margaret to go out by herself in this busy, bustling place. Mrs. Shaw's ideas of propriety, and her own helpless dependence on others, had always made her insist that a footman should accompany Edith and Margaret, if they went beyond Harley Street or the immediate neighbourhood. The limits by which this rule of her aunt's had circumscribed Margaret's independence had been silently rebelled against at the time, and she had doubly enjoyed the free walks and rambles of her forest life from the contrast which they presented. She went along there with a bounding, fearless step, that occasionally broke out into a run if she were in a hurry, and occasionally was stilled into perfect repose, as she stood listening to, or watching, any of the wild creatures who sang in the leafy courts, or glanced out with their keen, bright eyes from the low brushwood or tangled firs. It was a trial to come down from such motion, or such stillness, only guided by her own sweet will, to the even and decorous pace necessary in streets. But she could have laughed at herself for minding this change, if it had not been accompanied by what was a more serious annoyance. The side of town on which Crampton lay was especially a thoroughfare for the factory people. In the back streets around them there were many mills, out of which poured streams of men and women two or three times a day. Until Margaret had learnt the times of their ingress and egress, she was very unfortunate in constantly falling in with them. They came rushing along, with bold, fearless faces, and loud laughs and jests, particularly aimed at all those who appeared to be above them in rank or station. The tones of their unrestrained voices, and their carelessness of all common rules of street politeness, frightened Margaret a little at first. The girls, with their rough but not unfriendly freedom, would comment on her dress, even touch her shawl or gown to ascertain the exact material. Nay, once or twice she was asked questions relative to some article which they particularly admired. There was such a simple reliance on her womanly sympathy with their love of dress, and on her kindliness, that she gladly replied to these inquiries as soon as she understood them, and half smiled back at their remarks. She did not mind meeting any number of girls, loud-spoken and boisterous though they might be, but she alternately dreaded and fired up against the workmen, who commented not on her dress but on her looks, in the same open, fearless manner. She, who had hitherto felt that even the most refined remark on her personal appearance was an impertinence, had to endure undisguised admiration from these outspoken men. But the very outspokenness marked their innocence of any intention to hurt her delicacy, 
as she would have perceived, if she had been less frightened by the disorderly tumult. Out of her fright came a flash of indignation, which made her face scarlet, and her dark eyes gather flame, as she heard some of their speeches. Yet there were other sayings of theirs, which, when she reached the quiet safety of home, amused her even while they irritated her. For instance, one day, after she had passed a number of men, several of whom had paid her the not unusual compliment of wishing she was their sweetheart, one of the lingerers added, "'Your bonny face, my lass, makes the day look brighter.' And another day, as she was unconsciously smiling at some passing thought, she was addressed by a poorly-dressed, middle-aged workman, with, "'You may well smile, my lass. Many a one would smile to have such a bonny face.' This man looked so careworn that Margaret could not help giving him an answering smile, glad to think that her looks, such as they were, should have had the power to call up a pleasant thought. He seemed to understand her acknowledging glance, and a silent recognition was established between them whenever the chances of the day brought them across each other's paths. They had never exchanged a word, nothing had been said but that first compliment, yet somehow Margaret looked upon this man with more interest than upon anyone else in Milton. Once or twice, on Sundays, she saw him walking with a girl, evidently his daughter, and, if possible, still more unhealthy than he was himself. One day Margaret and her father had been as far as the fields that lay around the town. It was early spring, and she had gathered some of the hedge and ditch flowers, dog-violets, lesser celadines, and the like, with an unspoken lament in her heart for the sweet profusion of the South. Her father had left her to go into Milton upon some business, and on the road home she met her humble friends. The girl looked wistfully at the flowers, and, acting on a sudden impulse, Margaret offered them to her. Her pale blue eyes lighted up as she took them, and her father spoke for her. "'Thank you, miss. Bessie'll think a deal o' them flowers. That who will. And I shall think a deal o' your kindness.' "'You're not of this country, I reckon?' "'No,' said Margaret, half-sighing. "'I came from the South, from Hampshire,' she continued, a little afraid of wounding the consciousness of ignorance, if she used a name which he did not understand. "'That's beyond London, I reckon. And I come for Burley Ways, and forty miles to the North. And yet, you'll see, North and South has both met, and made kind of friends in this big smoky place.' Margaret had slackened her pace to walk alongside of the man and his daughter, whose steps were regulated by the feebleness of the latter. She now spoke to the girl, and there was a sound of tender pity in the tone of her voice as she did so that went right to the heart of the father. "'I am afraid you are not very strong.' "'No,' said the girl, "'nor never will be.' "'Spring is coming,' said Margaret, as if to suggest pleasant, hopeful thoughts." "'Spring nor summer will do me good,' said the girl, quietly. Margaret looked up at the man, almost expecting some contradiction from him, or at least some remark that would modify his daughter's utter hopelessness. But instead, he added, "'I'm afeard who speaks the truth. I'm afeard who's too far gone in a waste.' "'I shall have a spring where I'm bound to, and flowers, and amaranths, and shining robes besides.' "'Poor lass!' "'Poor lass,' said her father, in a low tone. "'I'm none so sure of that. "'But it's a comfort to thee. "'Poor lass. "'Poor lass. "'Poor father. "'It'll be soon.' "'Margaret was shocked by his words, 
shocked but not repelled, rather attracted and interested. Where do you live? I think we must be neighbors. We meet so often on this road. We put up at nine Francis Street. Second turn to the left after you've passed the Golden Dragon. And your name? I must not forget that. I'm none ashamed of my name. It's Nicholas Higgins. Who's called Bessie Higgins? What are you asking for? Margaret was surprised at this last question, for at Hellstone it would have been an understood thing, after the inquiry she had made, that she intended to come and call upon any poor neighbor whose name and habitation she had asked for. I thought, I meant to come and see you. She suddenly felt rather shy of offering the visit, without having any reason to give for her wish to make it, beyond a kindly interest in a stranger. It seemed all at once to take the shape of an impertinence on her part. She read this meaning, too, in the man's eyes. "'I'm none so fond of having strange folk in my house.' But then relenting, as he saw her heightened colour, he added, "'You're a foreigner, as one may say, and maybe don't know many folk here, and you've given my wench here flowers out of your own hand. You may come if you like.' Margaret was half amused, half nettled at this answer. She was not sure if she would go where permission was given so like a favour conferred. But when they came to the town into Francis Street, the girl stopped a minute and said, "'You'll not forget you're to come and see us.' "'Aye, aye,' said the father, impatiently. "'Who'll come? Who's a bit set up now, because who thinks I might have spoken more civilly? But who'll think better on it and come? I can read her proud bonny face like a book. Come along, Bess. There's the mill-bell ringin'.' Margaret went home, wondering at her new friends, and smiling at the man's insight into what had been passing in her mind. From that day Milton became a brighter place to her. It was not the long, bleak, sunny days of spring, nor yet was it that time was reconciling her to the town of her habitation. It was that she had found a human interest. End of chapter 8《Chapter Nine of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Nine Dressing for Tea. Let China's earth, enriched with colored stains, penciled with gold, and streaked with azure veins, the grateful flavor of the Indian leaf, or Moko's sunburnt berry glad receive. Mrs. Barbauld. The day after this meeting with Higgins and his daughter, Mr. Hale came upstairs into the little drawing-room at an unusual hour. He went up to different objects in the room, as if examining them, but Margaret saw that it was merely a nervous trick, a way of putting off something he wished, yet feared to say. Out it came at last. "'My dear, I've asked Mr. Thornton to come to tea to-night.' Mrs. Hale was leaning back in her easy-chair, with her eyes shut, and an expression of pain on her face which had become habitual to her of late, but she roused up into querulousness at this speech of her husband's. "'Mr. Thornton, and to-night! What in the world does the man want to come here for? And Dixon is washing my muslins and laces, and there is no soft water with all these horrid east winds, which I suppose we shall have all the year round in Milton.' "'The wind is veering round, my dear,' said Mr. Hale looking out at the smoke, which drifted right from the east. Only he did not yet understand the points of the compass, 
and rather arranged them ad libitum according to circumstances. "'Don't tell me,' said Mrs. Hale, shuddering up, and wrapping her shawl about her still more closely. "'But, east or west wind, I suppose this man comes.' "'Oh, mamma, that shows you never saw Mr. Thornton. He looks like a person who would enjoy battling with every adverse thing he could meet with, enemies, winds, or circumstances. The more it rains and blows, the more certain we are to have him. But I'll go and help Dixon. I'm getting to be a famous clear starcher, and he won't want any amusement beyond talking to Papa. Papa, I'm really longing to see Phytheus to your Damon. You know I never saw him but once, and then we were so puzzled to know what to say to each other that we did not get on particularly well. I don't know that you would ever like him, or think him agreeable, Margaret. He's not a ladies' man. Margaret wreathed her throat in a scornful curve. I don't particularly admire ladies' men, Papa. But Mr. Thornton comes here as your friend, as one who has appreciated you. The only person in Milton, said Mrs. Hale. So we will give him a welcome, and some cocoa nut cakes. Dixon will be flattered if we ask her to make some. And I will undertake to iron your caps, Mamma. Many a time that morning did Margaret wish Mr. Thornton far enough away. She had planned other employments for herself, a letter to Edith, a good piece of Dante, a visit to the Higginses. But, instead, she ironed away, listening to Dixon's complaints, and only hoping that by an excess of sympathy she might prevent her from carrying the recital of her sorrows to Mrs. Hale. Every now and then Margaret had to remind herself of her father's regard for Mr. Thornton, to subdue the irritation of weariness that was stealing over her, and bringing on one of the bad headaches to which she had lately become liable. She could hardly speak when she sat down at last, and told her mother that she was no longer Peggy the laundry-maid, but Margaret Hale the lady. She meant this speech for a little joke, and was vexed enough with her busy tongue when she found her mother taking it seriously. "'Yes,' If any one had told me, when I was Miss Beersford, and one of the bells of the county, that a child of mine would have to stand half a day, in a little pokey kitchen, working away like any servant, that we might prepare properly for the reception of a tradesman, and that this tradesman should be the only—oh, mamma," said Margaret, lifting herself up, "'don't punish me so for a careless speech. I don't mind ironing, or any kind of work, for you and papa.' I am myself a born and bred lady through it all, and even though it comes to scouring a floor or washing dishes. I am tired now, just for a little while, but in half an hour I shall be ready to do the same over again, and as to Mr. Thornton's being in trade, why he can't help that now, poor fellow, I don't suppose his education would fit him for much else. Margaret lifted herself slowly up and went to her own room for just now she could not bear much more. In Mr. Thornton's house, at this very same time, a similar, yet different, scene was going on. A large-boned lady, long past middle age, sat at work in a grim, handsomely furnished dining-room. Her features, like her frame, were strong and massive, rather than heavy. Her face moved slowly from one decided expression to another equally decided. There was no great variety in her countenance but those who looked at it once generally looked at it again. Even the passers-by in the street half turned their heads to gaze an instant longer at the firm, severe, dignified woman, 
who never gave way in street courtesy, or paused in her straight onward course to the clearly defined end which she proposed to herself. She was handsomely dressed in stout black silk, of which not a thread was worn or discoloured. She was mending a large, long tablecloth of the finest texture, holding it up against the light occasionally to discover thin places which required her delicate care. There was not a book about in the room, with the exception of Matthew Henry's Bible commentaries, six volumes of which lay in the centre of the massive sideboard, flanked by a tea-urn on one side and a lamp on the other. In some remote apartment there was exercise upon the piano going on. Someone was practising up a more coup de salon, playing it very rapidly, every third note, on an average, being either indistinct or wholly missed out, and the loud chords at the end being half of them false, but not the less satisfactory to the performer. Mrs. Thornton heard a step, like her own in its decisive character, past the dining-room door. "'John, is that you?' Her son opened the door and showed himself. "'What has brought you home so early? I thought you were going to tea with that friend of Mr. Bell's, that Mr. Hale.' "'So I am, mother. I came home to dress.' "'Dress? Huh! When I was a girl, young men were satisfied with dressing once in a day. Why should you dress to go and take a cup of tea with an old parson?' Mr. Hale is a gentleman, and his wife and daughter are ladies. "'Wife and daughter? Do they teach, too? What do they do? You have never mentioned them.' "'No, mother, because I have never seen Mrs. Hale, and I have only seen Miss Hale for half an hour.' "'Take care you don't get caught by a penniless girl, John.' "'I am not easily caught, mother, as I think you know.' but I must not have Miss Hale spoken of in that way, which, you know, is offensive to me. I never was aware of any young lady trying to catch me yet, nor do I believe that any one has ever given themselves that useless trouble. Mrs. Thornton did not choose to yield the point to her son, or else she had, in general, pride enough for her sex. Well, I only say, take care. Perhaps our Milton girls have too much spirit and good feeling to go angling after husbands, but this Miss Hale comes out of the aristocratic counties, where, if tales be true, rich husbands are reckoned prizes. Mr. Thornton's brow contracted, and he came a step forward into the room. Mother, with a short scornful laugh, you will make me confess— the only time I saw Miss Hale, she treated me with a haughty civility which had a strong flavour of contempt in it. She held herself aloof from me as if she had been a queen, and I her humble, unwashed vassal. Be easy, mother. No, I am not easy, nor content either. What business had she, her renegade clergyman's daughter, to turn up her nose at you? I would dress for none of them, a saucy set if I were you. As he was leaving the room, he said, Mr. Hale is good, and gentle, and learned. He is not saucy. As for Mrs. Hale, I will tell you what she is like to-night, if you care to hear. He shut the door, and was gone. Despise my son! Treat him as a vassal, indeed! Huh! I should like to know where she could find such another! Boy and man! He is the noblest, stoutest heart I ever knew. I don't care if I am his mother. I can see what's what, and not be blind. 
I know what Fanny is, and I know what John is. Despise him. I hate her. End of chapter 9「Ten of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Ten, Wrought Iron and Gold. We are the trees whom shaking fastens more. George Herbert. Mr. Thornton left the house without coming into the dining room again, and walked rapidly out to Crampton. He was anxious not to slight his new friend by any disrespectful unpunctuality. The church clock struck half-past seven as he stood at the door awaiting Dixon's slow movements, always doubly tardy when she had to degrade herself by answering the doorbell. He was ushered into the little drawing-room, and kindly greeted by Mr. Hale, who led him up to his wife, whose pale face and shawl-draped figure made a silent excuse for the cold languor of her greeting. Margaret was lighting the lamp when he entered, for the darkness was coming on. The lamp threw a pretty light into the centre of the dusky room, from which, with country habits, they did not exclude the night skies and the outer darkness of air. Somehow that room contrasted itself with the one he had lately left. Handsome, ponderous, with no sign of feminine habitation, except in the one spot where his mother sat, and no convenience for any other employment than eating and drinking. To be sure, it was a dining-room, his mother preferred to sit in it, and her will was a household law. But the drawing-room was not like this. It was twice, twenty times as fine, not one quarter as comfortable. Here were no mirrors, not even a scrap of glass to reflect the light, and answer the same purpose as water in a landscape. No gilding, a warm, sober breath of colouring, well relieved by the dear old hellstone chintz curtains and chair covers. An open davenport stood in the window opposite the door. In the other there was a stand, with a tall white china vase, from which drooped wreaths of English ivy, pale green birch, and copper-coloured beech leaves. Pretty baskets of work stood about in different places, and books, not cared for on account of their binding solely, lay on one table, as if recently put down. Behind the door was another table, decked out for tea, with a white tablecloth, on which flourished the coconut cakes, and a basket piled with oranges and ruddy American apples, heaped on leaves. It appeared to Mr. Thornton that all these graceful cares were habitual to the family, and especially of a piece with Margaret. She stood by the tea-table in a light-coloured muslin gown, which had a good deal of pink about it, she looked as if she was not attending to the conversation, but solely busy with the teacups, among which her round ivory hands moved with pretty, noiseless daintiness. She had a bracelet on one taper arm, which would fall down over her round wrist. Mr. Thornton watched the replacing of this troublesome ornament with far more attention than he listened to her father. It seemed as if it fascinated him to see her push it up impatiently, until it tightened her soft flesh and then to mark the loosening, the fall. He could almost have exclaimed, There it goes, again. There was so little left to be done after he arrived at the preparation for tea that he was almost sorry the obligation of eating and drinking came so soon as to prevent his watching Margaret. She handed him his cup of tea with the proud air of an unwilling slave, 
but her eye caught the moment when he was ready for another cup, and he almost longed to ask her to do for him what he saw her compelled to do for her father, who took her little finger and thumb in his masculine hand, and made them serve as sugar-tongs. Mr. Thornton saw her beautiful eyes lifted to her father, full of light, half laughter and half love, as this bit of pantomime went on between the two, unobserved, as they fancied, by any. Margaret's head still ached, as the paleness of her complexion, and her silence might have testified, but she was resolved to throw herself into the breach, if there was any long untoward pause, rather than that her father's friend, pupil, and guest should have cause to think himself in any way neglected. But the conversation went on, and Margaret drew into a corner, near her mother, with her work, after the tea-things were taken away, and felt that she might let her thoughts roam, without fear of being suddenly wanted to fill a gap. Mr. Thornton and Mr. Hale were both absorbed in the continuation of some subject which had been started at their last meeting. Margaret was recalled to a sense of the present by some trivial, low-spoken remark of her mother's, and on suddenly looking up from her work, her eye was caught by the difference of outward appearance between her father and Mr. Thornton, as betokening such distinctly opposite natures. Her father was of slight figure, which made him appear taller than he really was, when not contrasted, as at this time, with the tall, massive frame of another. The lines in her father's face were soft and waving, with a frequent undulating kind of trembling movement passing over them, showing every fluctuating emotion. The eyelids were large and arched, giving to the eyes a peculiar languid beauty which was almost feminine. The brows were finely arched, but were, by the very size of the dreamy lids, raised to a considerable distance from the eyes. Now, in Mr. Thornton's face, the straight brows fell low over the clear, deep-set, earnest eyes, which, without being unpleasantly sharp, seemed intent enough to penetrate into the very heart and core of what he was looking at. The lines in the face were few but firm, as if they were carved in marble, and lay principally about the lips, which were slightly compressed over a set of teeth so faultless and beautiful as to give the effect of sudden sunlight, when the rare bright smile, coming in an instant and shining out of the eyes, changed the whole look from the severe resolved expression of a man ready to do and dare everything, to the keen honest enjoyment of the moment which is seldom shown so fearlessly and instantaneously except by children. Margaret liked this smile. It was the first thing she had admired in this new friend of her father's, and the opposition of character, shown in all these details of appearance she had just been noticing, seemed to explain the attraction they evidently felt towards each other. She rearranged her mother's worsted work, and fell back into her own thoughts, as completely forgotten by Mr. Thornton as if she had not been in the room, so thoroughly was he occupied in explaining to Mr. Hale the magnificent power, yet delicate adjustment, of the might of the steam-hammer, which was recalling to Mr. Hale some of the wonderful stories of the subservient genie in the Arabian Nights, one moment stretching from earth to sky and filling all the width of the horizon, and the next obediently compressed into a vase small enough to be borne in the hand of a child. And this imagination of power— this practical realization of a gigantic thought came out of one man's brain in our good town. That very man has it within him to mount, step by step, on each wonder he achieves, to higher marvels still. And I'll be bound to say, we have many among us who, 
if he were gone, could spring into the breach and carry on the war which compels, and shall compel, all material power to yield to science. "'Your boast reminds me of the old lines. "'I've a hundred captains in England,' he said, "'as good as ever he was.' At her father's quotation Margaret looked suddenly up, with inquiring wonder in her eyes. How in the world had they got from cogwheels to Chevy Chase? "'It's no boast of mine,' replied Mr. Thornton. "'It is plain matter of fact. I won't deny that I am proud of belonging to a town, or perhaps I should rather say a district, the necessities of which give birth to such grandeur of conception. I would rather be a man toiling, suffering, nay, failing and successless, here, than lead a dull, prosperous life in the well-worn grooves of what you call more aristocratic society down in the South, with their slow days of careless ease. One may be clogged with honey and unable to rise and fly. "'You are mistaken,' said Margaret, roused by the aspersion on her beloved South to a fond vehemence of defence that brought the colour into her cheeks and the angry tears into her eyes. "'You do not know anything about the South.' If there is less adventure, or less progress, I suppose I must not say less excitement, from the gambling spirit of trade, which seems requisite to force out these wonderful inventions, there is less suffering also. I see men here going about in the streets who look ground down by some pinching sorrow or care, who are not only sufferers but haters. Now, in the South we have our poor, but there is not that terrible expression in their countenances of a sullen sense of injustice which I see here. You do not know the South, Mr. Thornton, she concluded, collapsing into a determined silence, and angry with herself for having said so much. And may I say you do not know the North, asked he, with an inexpressible gentleness in his tone, as he saw that he had really hurt her. She continued resolutely silent, yet yearning after the lovely haunts she had left far away in Hampshire, with a passionate longing that made her feel her voice would be unsteady and trembling if she spoke. "'At any rate, Mr. Thornton,' said Mrs. Hale, "'you will allow that Milton is a much more smoky, dirty town than you will ever meet with in the South.' "'I am afraid I must give up its cleanliness,' said Mr. Thornton, with the quick, gleaming smile. "'But we are bidden by Parliament to burn our own smoke.' So I suppose, like good little children, we shall do as we are bid, sometime. But I thought you told me you had altered your chimneys so as to consume the smoke, did you not? asked Mr. Hale. Mine were altered by my own will, before Parliament meddled with the affair. It was an immediate outlay, but it repays me in the saving of coal. I'm not sure whether I should have done it, if I had waited until the Act was passed. At any rate, I should have waited to be informed against and fined, and given all the trouble in yielding that I legally could. But all laws which depend for their enforcement upon informers and fines become inert from the odiousness of the machinery. I doubt if there has been a chimney in Milton informed against for five years past, although some are constantly sending out one-third of their coal in what is called here unparliamentary smoke." I only know it is impossible to keep the muslin blinds clean here above a week together, and at Hellstone we had them up for a month or more, and they have not looked dirty at the end of that time. And as for hands, Margaret, how many times did you say you had washed your hands this morning before twelve o'clock? Three times, was it not? Yes, Mamma. 
you seem to have a strong objection to the acts of parliament and all legislation affecting your mode of management down here at milton said mr hale yes i have and many others have as well and with justice i think the whole machinery i don't mean the wood and iron machinery now of the cotton trade is so new that is it no wonder if it does not work well in every part all at once seventy years ago what was it and now what is it not raw crude materials came together men of the same level as regarding education and station took suddenly the different positions of masters and men owing to the mother-wit as regarded opportunities and probabilities which distinguished some and made them far-seeing as to what great future lay concealed in that rude model of sir richard arkwright's the rapid development of what might be called a new trade gave those early masters enormous power of wealth and command i don't mean merely over the workmen i mean over purchasers over the whole world's market why i may give you as an instance an advertisement inserted not fifty years ago in a milton paper that so-and-so one of the half-dozen calico printers of the time would close his warehouse at noon each day therefore that all purchasers must come before that hour fancy a man dictating in this manner the time when he would sell and when he would not sell now i believe if a good customer chose to come at midnight i should get up and stand hat in hand to receive his orders margaret's lip curled but somehow she was compelled to listen she could no longer abstract herself in her own thoughts i only name such things to show what almost unlimited power the manufacturers had about the beginning of this century the men were rendered dizzy by it because a man was successful in his ventures there was no reason that in all other things his mind should be well balanced on the contrary his sense of justice and his simplicity were often utterly smothered under the glut of wealth that came down upon him and they tell strange tales of the wild extravagance of living indulged in on gala days by those early cotton lords there can be no doubt too of the tyranny they exercised over their workpeople you know the proverb mr hale set a beggar on horseback and he'll ride to the devil well some of these early manufacturers did ride to the devil in a magnificent style crushing human bone and flesh under their horses hoofs without remorse but by and by came a reaction there were more factories more masters more men were wanted the power of masters and men became more evenly balanced and now the battle is pretty fairly waged between us we will hardly submit to the decision of an umpire much less to the interference of a meddler with only a smattering of the knowledge of the real facts of the case even though that meddler be called the high court of parliament is there necessity for calling it a battle between the two classes asked mr hale i know from your using the term it is one which gives a true idea of the real state of things to your mind it is true and i believe it to be as much a necessity as that prudent wisdom and good conduct are always opposed to and doing battle with ignorance and improvidence it is one of the great beauties of our system that a working man may raise himself into the power and position of a master by his own exertions and behavior that in fact every one who rules himself to decency and sobriety of conduct and attention to his duties comes over to our ranks it may not always be as a master but as an overlooker a cashier a bookkeeper a clerk one on the side of authority and order you consider all who are unsuccessful in raising themselves in the world 
from whatever cause, as your enemies, then, if I understand you rightly, said Margaret, in a clear, cold voice. As their own enemies, certainly, said he, quickly, not a little piqued by the haughty disapproval her form of expression and tone of speaking implied. But, in a moment, his straightforward honesty made him feel that his words were but a poor and quibbling answer to what she had said, and, be she as scornful as she liked, it was a duty he owed to himself to explain, as truly as he could, what he did mean. Yet it was very difficult to separate her interpretation, and keep it distinct from his meaning. He could best have illustrated what he wanted to say by telling them something of his own life, but was it not too personal a subject to speak about to strangers? Still, it was the simple, straightforward way of explaining his meaning, so, putting aside the touch of shyness that brought a momentary flush of color into his dark cheek, he said, "'I am not speaking without book. Sixteen years ago my father died under very miserable circumstances. I was taken from school, and had to become a man, as well as I could, in a few days. I had such a mother as few are blessed with, a woman of strong power and firm resolve. We went into a small country town, where living was cheaper than in Milton, and where I got employment in a draper's shop, a capital place, by the way, for obtaining a knowledge of goods. Week by week our income came to fifteen shillings, out of which three people had to be kept. My mother managed so that I could put by three of these fifteen shillings regularly. This made the beginning. This taught me self-denial. Now that I am able to afford my mother such comforts as her age, rather than her own wish, requires, I thank her silently on each occasion for the early training she gave me. Now, when I feel that in my own case it is no good luck, nor merit, nor talent, but simply the habits of life which taught me to despise indulgences not thoroughly earned, indeed, never to think twice about them, I believe that this suffering, which Miss Hale says is impressed on the countenances of the people of Milton, is but the natural punishment of dishonestly enjoyed pleasure at some former period of their lives. I do not look on self-indulgent, sensual people as worthy of my hatred. I simply look upon them with contempt for their poorness of character. "'But you have had the rudiments of a good education,' remarked Mr. Hale. "'The quick zest with which you are now reading Homer shows me that you do not come to it as an unknown book. You have read it before, and are only recalling your old knowledge.' "'That is true. I had blundered along it at school. I dare say.' I was even considered a pretty fair classic in those days, though my Latin and Greek have slipped away from me since. But I ask you, what preparation they were for such a life as I had to lead? None at all. Utterly none at all. On the point of education, any man who can read and write starts fair with me in the amount of really useful knowledge that I had at that time. Well, I don't agree with you. But there I am perhaps somewhat of a pedant. Did not the recollection of the heroic simplicity of the Homeric life nerve you up? Not one bit, exclaimed Mr. Thornton, laughing. I was too busy to think about any dead people, with the living pressing alongside me, neck to neck, in the struggle for bread. Now that I have my mother safe in the quiet peace that becomes her age, and duly rewards her former exertions, I can turn to all that old narration and thoroughly enjoy it. I dare say. My remark came from the professional feeling of there being nothing like leather, replied Mr. Hale. 
when mr thornton rose up to go away after shaking hands with mr and mrs hale he made an advance to margaret to wish her good-bye in a similar manner it was the frank familiar custom of the place but margaret was not prepared for it she simply bowed her farewell although the instant she saw the hand half put out quickly drawn back she was sorry she had not been aware of the intention mr thornton however knew nothing of her sorrow and drawing himself up to his full height walked off muttering as he left the house a more proud disagreeable girl i never saw even her great beauty is blotted out of one's memory by her scornful ways End of chapter ten chapter eleven of north and south by elizabeth gaskell this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne chapter eleven first impressions there's iron they say in all our blood and a grain or two perhaps is good but his he makes me harshly feel has got a little too much of steel anonymous margaret said mr hale as he returned from showing his guest downstairs i could not help watching your face with some anxiety when mr thornton made his confession of having been a shop-boy i knew it all along from mr bell so i was aware of what was coming but i half expected to see you get up and leave the room oh papa you don't mean that you thought me so silly i really liked that account of himself better than anything else he said everything else revolted me from its hardness but he spoke about himself so simply with so little of the pretence that makes the vulgarity of shop people and with such tender respect for his mother that i was less likely to leave the room then than when he was boasting about milton as if there was not such another place in the world or quietly professing to despise people for careless wasteful improvidence without ever seeming to think it his duty to try to make them different to give them anything of the training which his mother gave him and to which he evidently owes his position whatever that may be no his statement of having been a shop-boy was the thing i liked best of all i'm surprised at you margaret said her mother you who are always accusing people of being shoppy at hellstone i don't think mr hale you have done quite right in introducing such a person to us without telling us what he had been i really was very much afraid of showing him how much shocked i was at some parts of what he said his father dying in miserable circumstances why it might have been in the workhouse i am not sure if it was not worse than being in the workhouse replied her husband i heard a good deal of his previous life from mr bell before we came here and as he has told you a part i will fill up what he left out his father speculated wildly failed and then killed himself because he could not bear the disgrace all his former friends shrunk from the disclosures that had to be made of his dishonest gambling wild hopeless struggles made with other people's money to regain his own moderate portion of wealth no one came forwards to help the mother and this boy there was another child i believe a girl too young to earn money but of course she had to be kept at least no friend came forward immediately and mrs thornton is not one i fancy to wait till tardy kindness comes to find her out so they left milton i knew that he had gone into a shop and that his earnings with some fragment of property secured to his mother 
had been made to keep them for a long time. Mr. Bell said they absolutely lived upon water porridge for years. How, he did not know. But long after the creditors had given up hope of any payment of old Mr. Thornton's debts, if, indeed, they had ever hoped at all about it, after his suicide, this young man returned to Milton, and went quietly round to each creditor, paying him the first installment of the money owing to him. No noise, no gathering together of creditors. It was done very silently and quietly, but all was paid at last, helped on materially by the circumstance of one of the creditors, a crabbed old fellow, Mr. Bell says, taking in Mr. Thornton as a kind of partner. "'That really is fine,' said Margaret. "'What a pity such a nature should be tainted by his position as a Milton manufacturer.' "'How tainted?' asked her father. "'Oh, Papa, by that testing everything by the standard of wealth. When he spoke of the mechanical powers, he evidently looked upon them only as new ways of extending trade and making money. And the poor men around him, they were poor because they were vicious, out of the pale of his sympathies because they had not his iron nature and the capabilities that it gives him for being rich. Not vicious. He never said that. Improvident and self-indulgent were his words. Margaret was collecting her mother's working materials and preparing to go to bed. Just as she was leaving the room she hesitated. She was inclined to make an acknowledgment which she thought would please her father, but which, to be full and true, must include a little annoyance. However, out it came. Papa, I do think Mr. Thornton a very remarkable man, but personally I don't like him at all. And I do, said her father, laughing, personally, as you call it, and all. I don't set him up for a hero, or anything of that kind. But good night, child. Your mother looks sadly tired tonight, Margaret. Margaret had noticed her mother's jaded appearance with anxiety for some time past, and this remark of her father's sent her up to bed with a dim fear lying like a weight on her heart. The life in Milton was so different from what Mrs. Hale had been accustomed to live in Helstone, in and out perpetually into the fresh and open air. The air itself was so different, deprived of all revivifying principle as it seemed to be here. The domestic worries pressed so closely, and in so new and sordid a form, upon all the women in the family, that there was good reason to fear that her mother's health might be becoming seriously affected. There were several other signs of something wrong about Mrs. Hale. She and Dixon held mysterious consultations in her bedroom, from which Dixon would come out crying and cross, as was her custom when any distress of her mistress called upon her sympathy. Once Margaret had gone into the chamber soon after Dixon left it, and found her mother on her knees, and as Margaret stole out she caught a few words, which were evidently a prayer for strength and patience to endure severe bodily suffering. Margaret yearned to reunite the bond of intimate confidence which had been broken by her long residence at her Aunt Shaw's, and strove by gentle caresses and softened words to creep into the warmest place in her mother's heart. But though she received caresses and fond words back again, in such profusion as would have gladdened her formerly, yet she felt there was a secret withheld from her, and she believed it bore serious reference to her mother's help. She lay awake very long this night, planning how to lessen the evil influence of their Milton life on her mother. A servant to give Dixon permanent assistance should be got, if she gave up her whole time to the search, and then, at any rate, 
her mother might have all the personal attention she required and had been accustomed to her whole life visiting register offices seeing all manner of unlikely people and very few in the least likely absorbed margaret's time and thoughts for several days one afternoon she met bessie higgins in the street and stopped to speak to her well bessie how are you better i hope now the wind has changed better and not better if you know what that means not exactly replied margaret smiling i'm better in not being torn to pieces by coughing a nights but i'm weary and tired of milton and longing to get away to the land of beulah and when i think i'm farther and farther off my heart sinks and i'm no better i'm worse margaret turned round to walk alongside of the girl in her feeble progress homeward but for a minute or two she did not speak at last she said in a low voice bessie do you wish to die for she shrank from death herself with all the clinging to life so natural to the young and healthy bessie was silent in her turn for a minute or two then she replied if you'd led the life i have and gettin as weary of it as i have and thought at times maybe it'll last for fifty or sixty years it does with some and got dizzy and dazed and sick as each of them sixty years seemed to spin about me and mock me with its length of hours and minutes and endless bits of time oh wench i tell thee thou'd be glad enough when the doctor said he feared thou'd never see another winter why bessie what kind of a life has yours been not worse than many others i reckon only i fretted again it and they didn't but what was it you know i am a stranger here so perhaps i'm not so quick at understanding what you mean as if i'd lived all my life in milton if you'd a come to our house when you said you would i could maybe ha told you but father says you're just like the rest of em it's out of sight out of mind with you i don't know who the rest are and i've been very busy and to tell the truth i had forgotten my promise you offered it we asked none of it i had forgotten what i said for the time continued margaret quietly i should have thought of it again when i was less busy may i go with you now bessie gave a quick glance at margaret's face to see if the wish expressed was really felt the sharpness in her eye turned into a wistful longing as she met margaret's soft and friendly gaze i had none so many to care for me if you care you may come so they walked on together in silence as they turned up into a small court opening out of a squalid street bessie said you'll not be daunted if father's at home and speaks a bit gruffish at first he took a mind to you you see and he thought a deal o' your coming to see us and just because he liked you he was vexed and put about don't fear bessie but nicholas was not at home when they entered a great slatternly girl not so old as bessie but taller and stronger was busy at the wash-tub knocking about the furniture in a rough capable way but altogether making so much noise that margaret shrunk out of sympathy with poor bessie who had sat down in the first chair as if completely tired out with her walk margaret asked the sister for a cup of water and while she ran to fetch it knocking down the fire-irons and turning over a chair in her way she unloosed bessie's bonnet-strings to relieve her catching breath do you think such a life as this is worth caring for gasped bessie at last margaret did not speak but held the water to her lips 
Bessie took a long and feverish draught, and then fell back and shut her eyes. Margaret heard her murmur to herself, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Margaret bent over and said, Bessie, don't be impatient with your life, whatever it is, or may have been. Remember one who gave it you, and who made it what it is. She was startled by hearing Nicholas speak behind her. He had come in without her noticing him. Now I'll not have my wench preached to. She's bad enough as it is, with her dreams and her methody fancies, and her visions of cities with golden gates and precious stones. But if it amuses her, I let it be. But I'm none going to have more stuff poured into her. But surely, said Margaret, facing round, you believe in what I said, that God gave her life, and ordered what kind of life it was to be. I believe what I see, and no more. That's what I believe, young woman. I don't believe all I hear. No, not by a big deal. I did hear a young lass make an ado about knowing where we lived, and coming to see us, and my wench here thought a deal about it, and flushed up many a time, when who little knew as I was looking at her, at the sound of a strange step. But who's come at last, and who's welcome, as long as who'll keep from preaching on what who knows not about? Bessie had been watching Margaret's face. She half set up to speak now, laying her hand on Margaret's arm with a gesture of entreaty. Don't be vexed with him. There's many a one thinks like him, many and many a one here. If you could hear them speak, you'd not be shocked at him. He's a rare good man, is father. But oh, said she, falling back in despair, what he says at times makes me long to die more than ever, for I want to know so many things, and am so tossed about with wonder. Poor wench, poor old wench, I'm loath to vex thee, I am, but a man mun speak out for the truth, and when I see the world going all wrong at this time o' day, bothering itself with things it knows not about, and leaving undone all the things that lie in disorder close at its hand, why, I say, leave all this talk about religion alone, and set to work on what you see and know. That's my creed. It's simple, and not far to fetch, nor hard work. But the girl only pleaded the more with Margaret. Don't think hardly on him. He's a good man, he is. Sometimes I think I shall be moped with sorrow even in the city of God, if father is not there. The feverish colour came into her cheek, and the feverish flame into her eye. But you will be there, father. You shall. Oh, my heart. She put her hand to it, and became ghastly pale. Margaret held her in her arms, and put the weary head to rest on her bosom. She lifted the thin soft hair from off the temples, and bathed them with water. Nicholas understood all her signs for different articles with the quickness of love, and even the round-eyed sister moved with laborious gentleness at Margaret's hush. Presently the spasm that foreshadowed death had passed away. Bessie roused herself, and said, "'I'll go to bed. It's best place, but,' catching at Margaret's gown, "'you'll come again. I know you will. But just say it.' "'I will come to-morrow,' said Margaret." Bessie leaned back against her father, who prepared to carry her upstairs, but as Margaret rose to go, he struggled to say something. "'I could wish there were a God, if it were only to ask him to bless thee.' 
Margaret went away very sad and thoughtful. She was late for tea at home. At Hellstone, unpunctuality at mealtimes was a great fault in her mother's eyes. But now this, as well as many other little irregularities, seemed to have lost their power of irritation, and Margaret almost longed for the old complainings. "'Have you met with a servant, dear?' "'No, Mamma. That Anne Buckley would never have done.' "'Suppose I try,' said Mr. Hale. "'Everybody else has got their turn at this great difficulty. Now let me try. I may be the Cinderella to put on the slipper after all.' Margaret could hardly smile at this little joke, so oppressed was she by her visit to the Higginses. "'What would you do, Papa? How would you set about it?' "'Why, I would apply to some good house-mother to recommend me one known to her or her servants.' "'Very good.' but we must first catch our house-mother. You have caught her, or rather she is coming into the snare, and you will catch her to-morrow, if you are skilful. "'What do you mean, Mr. Hale?' asked his wife, her curiosity aroused. "'Why, my paragon pupil, as Margaret calls him, has told me that his mother intends to call on Mrs. and Miss Hale to-morrow.' "'Mrs. Thornton!' exclaimed Mrs. Hale. "'The mother of whom he spoke to us,' said Margaret. "'Mrs. Thornton, the only mother he has, I believe,' said Mr. Hale quietly. "'I shall like to see her. She must be an uncommon person,' her mother added. "'Perhaps she may have a relation who might suit us, and be glad of our place. She sounded such a careful, economical person, that I should like any one out of the same family.' "'My dear,' said Mr. Hale, alarmed, "'Pray don't go off on that idea. I fancy Mrs. Thornton is as haughty and proud in her way as our little Margaret here is in hers, and that she completely ignores that old time of trial, and poverty, and economy, of which he speaks so openly. I am sure, at any rate, she would not like strangers to know anything about it.' "'Take notice that it is not my kind of haughtiness, Papa, if I have any at all, which I don't agree to, though you're always accusing me of it.' I don't know positively that it's hers either, but from little things I have gathered from him, I fancy so. They cared too little to ask in what manner her son had spoken about her. Margaret only wanted to know if she must stay in to receive this call, as it would prevent her going to see how Bessie was, until late in the day, since the early morning was always occupied in household affairs. And then she recollected that her mother must not be left to have the whole weight of entertaining her visitor. End of chapter 11Mr. Thornton had some difficulty in working up his mother to the desired point of civility. She did not often make calls, and when she did, it was in heavy state that she went through her duties. Her son had given her a carriage, but she refused to let him keep horses for it. They were hired for the solemn occasions, when she paid morning or evening visits. She had had horses for three days, not a fortnight before, and had comfortably killed off all her acquaintances, who might now put themselves to trouble and expense in their turn. Yet Crampton was too far off for her to walk, and she had repeatedly questioned her son as to whether his wish that she should call on the Hales 
was strong enough to bear the expense of cab hire. She would have been thankful if it had not, for, as she said, she saw no use in making up friendships and intimacies with all the teachers and masters in Milton. Why, he would be wanting her to call on Fanny's dancing master's wife the next thing. And so I would, mother, if Mr. Mason and his wife were friendless in a strange place, like the Hales. Oh, you need not speak so hastily. I'm going to-morrow. I only wanted you to exactly understand about it. If you are going to-morrow, I shall order horses. Nonsense, John. One would think you were made of money. Not quite. Yet. But about the horses I'm determined. The last time you were out in a cab, you came home with a headache from the jolting. I never complained of it, I'm sure. No, my mother is not given to complaints, said he, a little proudly. But so much the more I have to watch over you. Now, as for Fanny there, a little hardship would do her good. She's not made of the same stuff as you are, John. She could not bear it. Mrs. Thornton was silent after this for her last words bore relation to a subject which mortified her. She had an unconscious contempt for a weak character, and Fanny was weak in the very points in which her mother and brother were strong. Mrs. Thornton was not a woman much given to reasoning. Her quick judgment and firm resolution served her in good stead of any long arguments and discussions with herself. She felt instinctively that nothing could strengthen Fanny to endure hardships patiently or face difficulties bravely and though she winced as she made this acknowledgment to herself about her daughter, it only gave her a kind of pitying tenderness of manner towards her. Much of the same description of demeanour with which mothers are wont to treat their weak and sickly children. A stranger, a careless observer, might have considered that Mrs. Thornton's manner to her children betokened far more love to Fanny than to John, but such a one would have been deeply mistaken. The daringness with which mother and son spoke out unpalatable truths, the one to the other, showed a reliance on the firm centre of each other's souls, which the uneasy tenderness of Mrs. Thornton's manner to her daughter, the shame with which she thought to hide the poverty of her child in all the grand qualities which she herself possessed unconsciously, and which she set so high a value upon in others, this shame, I say, betrayed the want of a secure resting-place for her affection. She never called her son by any name but John. Love and dear, and such like terms, were reserved for Fanny. But her heart gave thanks for him day and night, and she walked proudly among women for his sake. "'Fanny, dear, I shall have horses to the carriage to-day, to go and call on these hails. Should you not go and see Nurse? It's in the same direction, and she's always so glad to see you. You could go on there while I am at Mrs. Hale's.' "'Oh, Mamma, it's such a long way, and I'm so tired.' "'With what?' asked Mrs. Thornton, her brow slightly contracting. "'I don't know. The weather, I think. It's so relaxing. Couldn't you bring Nurse here, Mamma? The carriage could fetch her, and she could spend the rest of the day here, which I know she would like.' Mrs. Thornton did not speak, but she laid her work on the table and seemed to think. "'It will be a long way for her to walk back at night,' she remarked, at last. "'Oh, but I will send her home in a cab. I never thought of her walking.' At this point Mr. Thornton came in, just before going to the mill. "'Mother, I need hardly say, that if there is any little thing that could serve Mrs. Hale as an invalid, you will offer it, I'm sure.' 
if i can find it out i will but i have never been ill myself so i am not much up to invalid's fancies well here is fanny then who is seldom without an ailment she will be able to suggest something perhaps won't you fan i'm not always an ailment said fanny pettishly and i am not going with mamma i have a headache to-day and i shan't go out mr thornton looked annoyed his mother's eyes were bent on her work at which she was now stitching away busily fanny i wish you to go he said authoritatively it will do you good instead of harm you will oblige me by going without saying anything more about it he went abruptly out of the room after saying this if he had stayed a minute longer fanny would have cried at his tone of command even when he used the words you will oblige me as it was she grumbled john always speaks as if i fancied i was ill and i'm sure i never do fancy any such thing who are these hales that he makes such a fuss about fanny don't speak so of your brother he has good reasons of some kind or other or he would not wish us to go make haste and put your things on but the little altercation between her son and her daughter did not incline mrs thornton more favorably toward these hales her jealous heart repeated her daughter's question who are they that he is so anxious we should pay them all this attention it came up like a burden to a song long after fanny had forgotten all about it in the pleasant excitement of seeing the effect of a new bonnet in the looking-glass mrs thornton was shy it was only of late years that she had had leisure enough in her life to go into society and as society she did not enjoy it as dinner-giving and as criticizing other people's dinners she took satisfaction in it but this going to make acquaintance with strangers was a very different thing she was ill at ease and looked more than usually stern and forbidding as she entered the hales little drawing-room margaret was busy embroidering a small piece of cambric for some little article of dress for edith's expected baby flimsy useless work as mrs thornton observed to herself she liked mrs hale's double knitting far better that was sensible of its kind the room altogether was full of knick-knacks which must take a very long time to dust and time to people of limited income was money she made all these reflections as she was talking in her stately way to mrs hale and uttering all the stereotyped commonplaces that most people can find to say with their senses blindfolded mrs hale was making rather more exertion in her answers captivated by some real old lace which mrs thornton wore lace as she afterwards observed to dixon of that old english point which has not been made for the seventy years and which cannot be bought it must have been an heirloom and shows that she had ancestors so the owner of the ancestral lace became worthy of something more than the languid exertion to be agreeable to a visitor by which mrs hale's efforts at conversation would have been otherwise bounded at present margaret racking her brain to talk to fanny heard her mother and mrs thornton plunge into the interminable subject of servants i suppose you are not musical said fanny as i see no piano i am fond of hearing good music i cannot play well myself and papa and mamma don't care much about it so we sold our old piano when we came here i wonder how you can exist without one it almost seems to me a necessity of life fifteen shillings a week and three saved out of them thought margaret to herself but she must have been very young 
she probably has forgotten her own personal experience. But she must know of those days. Margaret's manner had an extra tinge of coldness in it when she next spoke. "'You have good concerts here, I believe?' "'Oh, yes. Delicious. Too crowded, that is the worst. The directors admit so indiscriminately. But one is sure to hear the newest music there. I always have a large order to give to Johnson's, the day after a concert.' "'Do you like new music simply for its newness, then?' "'Oh, one knows it is the fashion in London, or else the singers would not bring it down here. You have been in London, of course.' "'Yes,' said Margaret. "'I have lived there for several years.' "'Oh, London and the Alhambra are the two places I long to see.' "'London and the Alhambra?' "'Yes, ever since I read the tales of the Alhambra. Don't you know them?' I don't think I do. But surely it is a very easy journey to London. Yes, but somehow, said Fanny, lowering her voice, Mamma has never been to London herself, and can't understand my longing. She's very proud of Milton, dirty, smoky place as I feel it to be, and I believe she admires it the more for those very qualities. If it has been Mrs. Thornton's home for some years, I can well understand her loving it, said Margaret, in her clear, bell-like voice. "'What are you saying about me, Miss Hale? May I inquire?' Margaret had not the words ready for an answer to this question, which took her a little by surprise, so Miss Thornton replied, "'Oh, Mamma, we are only trying to account for your being so fond of Milton.' "'Thank you,' said Mrs. Thornton. "'I do not feel that my very natural liking for the place where I was born and brought up, and which has been my residence for some years, requires any accounting for.' Margaret was vexed. As Fanny had put it, it did seem as if they had been impertinently discussing Mrs. Thornton's feelings. But she also rose up against that lady's manner of showing that she was offended. Mrs. Thornton went on after a moment's pause. "'Do you know anything of Milton, Miss Hale? Have you seen any of our factories, our magnificent warehouses?' "'No,' said Margaret. "'I have not seen anything of that description as yet.' Then she felt that, by concealing her utter indifference to all such places, she was hardly speaking the truth, so she went on. "'I dare say, Papa would have taken me before now if I had cared, but I really do not find much pleasure in going over manufactories.' "'They are very curious places,' said Mrs. Hale, "'but there is so much noise and dirt always. I remember once going in a lilac silk to see candles made, and my gown was utterly ruined.' "'Very probably,' said Mrs. Thornton, in a short, displeased manner. "'I merely thought that as strangers newly come to reside in a town which has risen to eminence in the country, from the character and progress of its peculiar business, you might have cared to visit some of the places where it is carried on, places unique in the kingdom, I am informed. "'If Miss Hale changes her mind, and condescends to be curious as to the manufacturers of Milton,' I can only say I shall be glad to procure her admission to print-works, or reed-making, or the more simple operations of spinning carried on in my son's mill. Every improvement of machinery is, I believe, to be seen there, in its highest perfection. "'I'm so glad you don't like mills and manufactories, and all those kind of things,' said Fanny, in a half-whisper, as she rose to accompany her mother, who was taking leave of Mrs. Hale with rustling dignity." I think I should like to know all about them, if I were you, 
replied Margaret, quietly. "'Fanny,' said her mother, as they drove away, "'we will be civil to these Hales, but don't form one of your hasty friendships with the daughter. She will do you no good, I see. The mother looks very ill, and seems a nice, quiet kind of person.' "'I don't want any form of friendship with Miss Hale, Mamma," said Fanny, pouting. "'I thought I was doing my duty by talking to her and trying to amuse her.' "'Well, at any rate, John must be satisfied now.'" End of chapter 12「Thirteen of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Thirteen, A Soft Breeze in a Sultry Place. That doubt and trouble, fear and pain, and anguish, all are shadows vain. That death itself shall not remain. That weary deserts we may tread, a dreary labyrinth may thread through dark ways underground be led. Yet, if we will one guide obey, the dreariest path, the darkest way, shall issue out in heavenly day. And we, on divers shores now cast, shall meet, our perilous voyage past, all in our Father's house at last. R.C. Trench Margaret flew upstairs as soon as their visitors were gone, and put on her bonnet and shawl, to run and inquire how Bessie Higgins was, and to sit with her as long as she could before dinner. As she went along the crowded narrow streets, she felt how much of interest they had gained by the simple fact of her having learnt to care for a dweller in them. Mary Higgins, the slatternly younger sister, had endeavoured as well as she could to tidy up the house for the expected visit there had been rough stoning done in the middle of the floor, while the flags under the chairs and table and round the walls retained their dark, unwashed appearance. Although the day was hot, there burnt a large fire in the grate, making the whole place feel like an oven. Margaret did not understand that the lavishness of coals was a sign of hospitable welcome to her on Mary's part, and thought that perhaps the oppressive heat was necessary for Bessie. Bessie herself lay on a squab, or short sofa, placed under the window. She was very much more feeble than on the previous day, and tired with raising herself at every step to look out and see if it was Margaret coming. And now that Margaret was there, and had taken a chair by her, Bessie lay back silent, and content to look at Margaret's face, and touch her articles of dress, with a childish admiration of their fineness of texture. I never knew why folk in the Bible cared for soft raiment afore but it must be nice to go dressed as you do. It's different for common folk. Most fine folk tire my eyes out with their colours, but somehow yours rest me. Where did you get this frock? In London, said Margaret, much amused. London? Have you been to London? Yes, I lived there for some years, but my home was in a forest, in the country. Tell me about it said Bessie. I like to hear speak of the country and trees, and such like things. She leant back and shut her eyes, and crossed her hands over her breast, lying at perfect rest, as if to receive all the ideas Margaret could suggest. Margaret had never spoken of Hellstone since she left it, except just naming the place incidentally. 
she saw it in dreams more vivid than life and as she fell away to slumber at nights her memory wandered in all its pleasant places but her heart was opened to this girl oh bessie i loved the home we have left so dearly i wish you could see it i cannot tell you half its beauty there are great trees standing all about it with their branches stretching long and level and making a deep shade of rest even at noonday and yet though every leaf may seem still there's a continual rushing sound of movement all around not close at hand then sometimes the turf is as soft and fine as velvet and sometimes quite lush with the perpetual moisture of a little hidden tinkling brook near at hand and then in other parts there are billowy ferns whole stretches of fern some in the green shadow some with long streaks of golden sunlight lying on them just like the sea i have never seen the sea murmured bessie but go on then here and there there are wide commons high up as if above the very tops of the trees i'm glad of that i felt smothered like down below when i have gone for an out i've always wanted to get high up and see far away and take a deep breath of fullness in that air i get smothered enough in milton and i think the sound you speak of among the trees going on for ever and ever would send me dazed it's that made my head ache so in the mill now on these commons i reckon there is but little noise no said margaret nothing but here and there a lark high in the air sometimes i used to hear a farmer speaking sharp and loud to his servants but it was so far away that it only reminded me pleasantly that other people were hard at work in some distant place while i just sat on the heather and did nothing i used to think once that if i could have a day of doing nothing to rest me a day in some quiet place like that you speak on it would maybe set me up but now i've had many days of idleness and i'm just as weary of them as i was of my work sometimes i'm so tired out that i think i cannot enjoy heaven without a piece of rest first i'm rather a fear to go in straight there without getting a good sleep in the grave to set me up don't be afraid bessie said margaret laying her hand on the girls god can give you more perfect rest than even idleness on earth or the dead sleep of the grave can do bessie moved uneasily then she said i wish father would not speak as he does he means well as i told you yesterday and tell you again and again but you see though i don't believe him a bit by day yet by night when i'm in a fever half asleep and half awake it comes back upon me oh so bad and i think and i think if this should be the end of all and if all i've been born for is just to work my heart and my life away and to sicken in this drear place with them mill noises in my ears for ever until i could scream out for them to stop and let me have a little peace of quiet and with the fluff filling my lungs until i thirst to death for one long deep breath of the clear air you speak on and my mother gone and i never able to tell her again how i loved her and oh all of my troubles 
i think if this life is the end and that there's no god to wipe away all tears from all eyes yo wench yo she said sitting up and clutching violently almost fiercely at margaret's hand i could go mad and kill ya i could she fell back completely worn out with her passion margaret knelt down by her bessie we have a father in heaven i know it i know it moaned she turning her head uneasily from side to side i'm very wicked i've spoken very wickedly oh don't be frightened by me and never come again i would not harm a hair of your head and opening her eyes and looking earnestly at margaret i believe perhaps more than you do or what's to come i read the book of revelations until i know it off by heart and i never doubt when i'm wakin and in my senses of all the glory i'm to come to don't let us talk of what fancies come into your head when you are feverish i would rather hear something about what you used to do when you were well i think i was well when mother died but i have never been rightly strong since somewhere about that time i began to work in a carding room soon after and the fluff got into my lungs and poisoned me fluff said margaret inquiringly fluff replied bessie little bits as fly off for the cotton when they're carding it and fill the air till it looks all fine white dust they say it winds around the lungs and tightens them up anyhow there's many a one as works in a carding room that falls into a waste coughing and spitting blood because they're just poisoned by the fluff but can't it be helped asked margaret i don't know some folk have a great wheel at one end of their carding room to make a draught and carry off the dust but that wheel costs a deal of money five or six hundred pound maybe and brings no profit so it's but a few of the masters as will put em up and i've heard tell o men who did not like work in places where there was a wheel because they said how it made em hungry and after they'd been long used to swallowing fluff to go without it and that their wage ought to be raised if they were to work in such places so between masters and men the wheels fall through i know i wish there'd been a wheel in our place though did not your father know about it asked margaret yes and he were sorry but our factory were a good one on the whole and a steady likely set of people and father was afeard of letting me go to a strange place for though you would not think it now many a one then used to call me a gradely lass enough and i didna like to be reckoned nesh and soft and mary's schooling were to be kept up mother said and father he were always liking to buy books and go to lectures o one kind or another all which took money so i just worked on till i shall ne'er get the whir out of my ears nor the fluff out of my throat in this world that's all how old are you asked margaret nineteen come july and i too am nineteen she thought more sorrowfully than bessie did of the contrast between them she could not speak for a moment or two for the emotion she was trying to keep down about mary said bessie i wanted to ask you to be a friend to her she's seventeen but she's the last on us and i don't want her to go to the mill and yet i don't know what she's fit for she could not do margaret glanced unconsciously at the uncleaned corners of the room 
she could hardly undertake a servant's place could she we have an old faithful servant almost a friend who wants help but who is very particular and it would not be right to plague her with giving her any assistance that would really be an annoyance and an irritation no i see i reckon you're right our mary is a good wench but who has she had to teach her what to do about a house no mother and me at the mill till i were good for nothing but scolding her for doing badly what i didn't know how to do a bit i wish she could have lived with you for all that but even though she may not be exactly fitted to come and live with us as a servant and i don't know about that i will always try to be a friend to her for your sake bessie and now i must go i will come again as soon as i can but if it should not be to-morrow or the next day or even a week or a fortnight hence don't think i've forgotten you i may be busy i'll know you won't forget me again i'll not mistrust you no more but remember in a week or fortnight i may be dead and buried i'll come as soon as i can bessie said margaret squeezing her hand tight but you'll let me know if you are worse ay that i will said bessie returning the pressure from that day forwards mrs hale became more and more of a suffering invalid it was now drawing near to the anniversary of edith's marriage and looking back upon the year's accumulated heap of troubles margaret wondered how they had been born if she could have anticipated them how she would have shrunk away and hid herself from the coming time and yet day by day had of itself and by itself been very endurable small keen bright little spots of positive enjoyment having come sparkling into the very middle of sorrows a year ago or when she first went to helstone and first became silently conscious of the querulousness in her mother's temper she would have groaned bitterly over the idea of a long illness to be borne in a strange desolate noisy busy place with diminished comforts on every side of the home life but with the increase of serious and just ground of complaint a new kind of patience had sprung up in her mother's mind she was gentle and quiet in intense bodily suffering almost in proportion as she had been restless and depressed when there had been no real cause for grief mr hale was in exactly that stage of apprehension which in men of his stamp takes the shape of wilful blindness he was more irritated than margaret had ever known him at his daughter's expressed anxiety indeed margaret you are growing fanciful god knows i should be the first to take alarm if your mother were really ill we always saw when she had her headaches at helstone even without her telling us she looks quite pale and white when she is ill and now she has a bright healthy colour in her cheeks just as she used to have when i first knew her but papa said margaret with hesitation do you know i think that is the flush of pain nonsense margaret i tell you you are too fanciful you are the person not well i think send for the doctor to-morrow for yourself and then if it will make your mind easier he can see your mother thank you dear papa it will make me happier indeed and she went up to kiss him but he pushed her away gently enough but still as if she had suggested unpleasant ideas which he should be glad to get rid of as readily as he could of her presence he walked uneasily up and down the room poor maria said he half soliloquizing i wish one could do right without sacrificing others i shall hate this town 
and myself, too, if she— Pray, Margaret, does your mother often talk to you of the old places? Of Hellstone, I mean. No, Papa, said Margaret, sadly. Then, you see, she can't be fretting after them, eh? It's always been a comfort to me to think that your mother was so simple and open that I knew every little grievance she had. She never would conceal anything seriously affecting her health from me, would she, eh, Margaret? I'm quite sure she would not. So don't let me hear of these foolish, morbid ideas. Come, give me a kiss, and run off to bed. But she heard him pacing about, raccooning, as she and Edith used to call it, long after her slow and languid undressing was finished, long after she began to listen as she lay in bed. End of chapter 13「Chapter fourteen of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter fourteen. The Mutiny. I was used to sleep at night as sweetly as a child. Now, if the wind blew rough, it made me start, and think of my poor boy tossing about upon the roaring seas, and then I seemed to feel that it was hard to take him from me. For such a little fault. Southey. It was a comfort to Margaret about this time to find that her mother drew more tenderly and intimately towards her than she had ever done since the days of her childhood. She took her to her heart as a confidential friend, the post Margaret had always longed to fill, and had envied Dixon for being preferred to. Margaret took pains to respond to every call made upon her for sympathy, and there were many even when they bore relation to trifles, which she no more would have noticed or regarded herself than the elephant would perceive the little pin at his feet, which yet he lifts carefully up at the bidding of his keeper. All unconsciously Margaret drew near to a reward. One evening, Mr. Hale being absent, her mother began to talk to her about her brother Frederick, the very subject on which Margaret had longed to ask questions, and almost the only one, on which her timidity overcame her natural openness. The more she wanted to hear about him, the less likely she was to speak. "'Oh, Margaret, it was so windy last night. It came howling down the chimney in our room. I could not sleep. I never can when there is such a terrible wind. I got into a wakeful habit when poor Frederick was at sea, and now, even if I don't waken all at once, I dream of him in some stormy sea, with great, clear, glass-green walls of waves on either side of his ship, but far higher than her very mass, curling over her with that cruel, terrible white foam, like some gigantic crested serpent. It is an old dream, but it always comes back on windy nights, till I am thankful to waken, sitting straight and stiff up in bed with my terror. Poor Frederick! He is on land now, so wind can do him no harm, though I did think it might shake down some of those tall chimneys. Where is Frederick now, Mamma? Our letters are directed to the care of Mrs. Barber at Cadiz, I know, but where is he himself? I can't remember the name of the place, but he is not called Hale. You must remember that, Margaret. Notice the F.D. in every corner of the letters. He has taken the name of Dickinson. I wanted him to be called Beersford, 
to which he had a kind of a right, but your father thought he had better not. He might be recognized, you know, if he were called by my name. Mamma, said Margaret, I was at Aunt Shaw's when it all happened, and I suppose I was not old enough to be told plainly about it. But I should like to know now, if I may, if it does not give you too much pain to speak about it. Pain? No, replied Mrs. Hale, her cheeks flushing. Yet it is pain to think that perhaps I may never see my darling boy again. Or else he did right, Margaret. They may say what they like, but I have his own letters to show, and I'll believe him, though he is my son, sooner than any court-martial on earth. Go to my little Japan cabinet, dear, and in the second left-hand drawer you will find a packet of letters. Margaret went. There were the yellow, sea-stained letters, with the peculiar fragrance which ocean letters have. Margaret carried them back to her mother, who untied the silken string with trembling fingers, and, examining their dates, she gave them to Margaret to read, making her hurried, anxious remarks on their contents, almost before her daughter could have understood what they were. "'You see, Margaret, how from the very first he disliked Captain Reed. He was second lieutenant in the ship, the Orion, in which Frederick sailed the very first time. Poor little fellow! How well he looked in his midshipman's dress, with his dirk in his hand, cutting open all the newspapers with it as if it were a paper-knife. But this Mr. Reed, as he was then, seemed to take a dislike to Frederick from the very beginning. And then— Stay, these are the letters he wrote on board the Russell, when he was appointed to her, and found his old enemy Captain Reed in command. He did mean to bear all his tyranny patiently. Look, this is the letter. Just read it, Margaret. Where is it, he says? Stop. My father may rely upon me, that I will bear with all proper patience everything that one officer and gentleman can take from another. But from my former knowledge of my present captain— I confess I look forward with apprehension to a long cruise of tyranny on board the Russell. You see, he promises to bear patiently, and I am sure he did, for he was the sweetest tempered boy, when he was not vexed, that could possibly be. Is that the letter in which he speaks of Captain Reed's impatience with the men, for not going through the ship's manoeuvres as quickly as the Avenger? You see, he says that they had many new hands on board the Russell while the Avenger had been nearly three years on the station, with nothing to do but keep slavers off, and work her men till they ran up and down the rigging like rats or monkeys. Margaret slowly read the letter, half illegible, through the fading of the ink. It might be, it probably was, a statement of Captain Reed's imperiousness in trifles, very much exaggerated by the narrator, who had written it while fresh and warm from the scene of altercation. Some sailors being aloft in the main topsail rigging, the captain had ordered them to race down, threatening the hindmost with the cat o' nine tails. He who was furthest on the spar, feeling the impossibility of passing his companions, and yet passionately dreading the disgrace of the flogging, threw himself desperately down to catch a rope considerably lower, failed, and fell senseless on the deck. He only survived for a few hours afterwards and the indignation of the ship's crew was at a boiling point when young Hale wrote. But we did not receive this letter till long, long after we heard of the mutiny. Poor Fred! I dare say it was a comfort to him to write it, even though he could not have known how to send it, poor fellow. And then we saw a report in the papers. 
that's to say, long before Fred's letter reached us, of an atrocious mutiny having broken out on board the Russell, and that the mutineers had remained in possession of the ship, which had gone off, it was supposed, to be a pirate, and that Captain Reed was sent adrift in a boat with some men, officers or something, whose names were all given, for they were picked up by a West Indian steamer. Oh, Margaret, how your father and I turned sick over that list, when there was no name of Frederick Hale. We thought it must be some mistake, for poor Fred was such a fine fellow, only perhaps rather too passionate, and we hoped that the name of Carr, which was in the list, was a misprint for that of Hale. Newspapers are so careless. And towards post-time the next day, Papa set off to walk to Southampton to get the papers, and I could not stop at home, so I went to meet him. He was very late, much later than I thought he would have been, and I sat down under a hedge to wait for him. He came at last, his arms hanging loose down, his head sunk, and walking heavily along, as if every step was a labor and a trouble. Margaret, I see him now. Don't go on, Mamma. I can understand it all, said Margaret, leaning up caressingly against her mother's side and kissing her hand. No, you can't, Margaret. No one can who did not see him then. I could hardly lift myself up to go and meet him. Everything seemed so to reel around me at once. And when I got to him, he did not speak, or seem surprised to see me there, more than three miles from home, beside the oldham beech-tree. But he put my arm in his, and kept stroking my hand, as if he wanted to soothe me to be very quiet under some great heavy blow. And when I trembled so all over that I could not speak, he took me in his arms, and stooped down his head on mine, and began to shake and cry in a strange, muffled, groaning voice, till I, for very fright, stood quite still, and only begged him to tell me what he had heard. And then, with his hand jerking, as if someone else moved it against his will, he gave me a wicked newspaper to read, calling our Frederick a traitor of the blackest dye, a base ungrateful disgrace to his profession. Oh, I cannot tell what bad words they did not use. I took the paper in my hands as soon as I had read it. I tore it up to little bits. I tore it. Oh, I believe, Margaret, I tore it with my teeth. I did not cry. I could not. My cheeks were hot as fire and my very eyes burned in my head. I saw your father looking grave at me. I said it was a lie, and so it was. Months after, this letter came, and you see what provocation Frederick had. It was not for himself or for his own injuries he rebelled, but he would speak his mind to Captain Reed, and so it went on from bad to worse. And you see, most of the sailors stuck by Fred." I think, Margaret, she continued after a pause, in a weak, trembling, exhausted voice, I am glad of it. I am prouder of Frederick standing up against injustice than if he had been simply a good officer. I am sure I am, said Margaret, in a firm, decided tone. 
loyalty and obedience to wisdom and justice are fine but it is still finer to defy arbitrary power unjustly and cruelly used not on behalf of ourselves but on behalf of others more helpless for all that i wish i could see frederick once more just once he was my first baby margaret mrs hale spoke wistfully and almost as if apologizing for the yearning craving wish as though it were a depreciation of her remaining child but such an idea never crossed margaret's mind she was thinking how her mother's desire could be fulfilled it is six or seven years ago would they still prosecute him mother if he came and stood his trial what would be the punishment surely he might bring evidence of his great provocation it would do no good replied mrs hale some of the sailors who accompanied frederick were taken and there was a court-martial held on them on board the amicia i believed all they said in their defence poor fellows because it just agreed with frederick's story but it was of no use for the first time during the conversation mrs hale began to cry yet something possessed margaret to force the information she foresaw yet dreaded from her mother what happened to them mamma asked she they were hung at the yard-arm said mrs hale solemnly and the worst was that the court in condemning them to death said they had suffered themselves to be led astray from their duty by their superior officers they were silent for a long time and frederick was in south africa for several years was he not yes and now he is in spain at cadiz or somewhere near it if he comes to england he will be hung i shall never see his face again for if he comes to england he will be hung there was no comfort to be given mrs hale turned her face to the wall and lay perfectly still in her mother's despair nothing could be said to console her she took her hand out of margaret's with a little impatient movement as if she would fain be left alone with the recollection of her son when mr hale came in margaret went out oppressed with gloom and seeing no promise of brightness on any side of the horizon End of chapter fourteen